Jesus is having interactions with the rulers of the Jews. They seek to trap him by creating a problem. We talked about the dilemma last time, verses 1 through 11. And these people failed to follow due process. They did not have both of the people who were uh, present uh, during the act, the people that were committing adultery together. They only had the woman. There's supposed to be a punishing of both of them. There is not a presence of the victim in order to have the victim be the one who determines the level of punishment. This is not Jesus as a civil magistrate acting. This is him being asked a question about the justice of the penalty. And Jesus' answer is, the penalty is just. It came from Moses. It's what God said. And he furthermore says, let the witness, because the law of Moses requires that one of the witnesses be the one who is to administer the first stone. Um, So the witnesses are the ones who are the ones that would be required. And furthermore, that it needs to be a witness who is without sin in the sense of not being sinlessly perfect, because then nobody could ever punish any criminals. But instead, it requires that somebody who has gone through the process without some sort of a miscarriage of justice. So sin is being used here as a label to refer to a witness that can, in justice, administer the penalty. And so we talked about how the most common way of reading this is to say that Jesus is saying, no one can administer a punishment for a crime unless they are sinless. Right? And nobody actually believes that unless you're Quaker and you're a pacifist. If you're not a pacifist, if you don't believe in self-defense, if you don't believe in the punishment of any crimes, if you don't believe in just warfare at all, okay, fine, you can consistently read that, but have a good time trying to figure out how to read the rest of the Bible because you're going to have a really hard time with lots of other texts. So, if we instead say that what's happening here is there's a way in which there's to be an administration of the law that accords with what was taught before, and Jesus' answer is, Great, if you think you can administer the punishment justly, then make sure that the witnesses are the ones that do it, the ones that are able to justly. And none of them do it because they are concerned about, one, violating Roman law and being punished by the Roman government for issuing capital punishment without the authorization of the governor. And two, they may be concerned in their consciences about the concern of the the curse of God for their unjust process of law. So, minimally, I would say that they are concerned about getting on the bad side of Pilate. So that's what we talked about last time. That's my effort to summarize. So if we move on from that, what is the point of this passage here? Okay, one of the arguments that people may make, you know, either from the critical text, which some of the copies of the critical text remove this, not all of them even, So some people try to argue that this text should be removed, and they try to make an argument that it doesn't really fit in the flow of what's happening here. I believe what's happening here is a setup to show the darkness of these rulers, and then Jesus makes a claim about being the light. Okay, so their wicked rule is a type of darkness, and Jesus is about to be contrasted with them. Okay, so go to John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, we talked at the beginning of John about Christ as the light, right? Remember John 1, 5, which teaches that Christ is the light, but the the light um, doesn't comprehend, doesn't understand. Sorry, the darkness doesn't, doesn't understand. So there's this idea of the world as darkness and God, Christ, as the light. And so the idea of this rejection of the light by the darkness, and that included even going to his own people, the external covenant people of God, the only visible church on the planet at the time, the Jews. And so when there is a coming of Christ there, he is in conflict with the darkness that is overwhelmingly present even in the only visible church on the planet. So he is the light of the world, and he who follows Christ shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay, so the walking in darkness can be understood in two ways. You can talk about the idea of, of how you live, right? So like, are you applying the law of God? But you could also be, can you see where you're going? Okay, now, both of those depend upon the work of 
the special revelation of God coming to us, words from heaven, and it depends upon the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate us. And so in order to see where we're going and in order to do any good, we need the work of the light in us. And so we've talked about the ways in which we can think about light and, and, and the Logos, and I want to remind you that First of all, God himself, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in his divine nature, is the Logos. He is the Word, and he is the light. Furthermore, he decrees what is made and how things go in history. And so his decree that governs all things is the Word. It is his Word. And he uses that which he has made to display his glory. And that gets interpreted through what it is that a person already believes. So a Christian is going to see the glory of God. An unbeliever is going to not see it in the creation. Logos, in terms of the third meaning of it, is the image of God. It is the light that lights the minds of all men. It is Christ illuminating even unsaved people so that they are accountable. They suppress that light in unrighteousness and only the work of the Holy Spirit overcomes that suppressing work of man's nature. There is also the giving of light in terms of words from God. The prophetic word captured in Scripture. The fifth sense is that illuminating work that I keep bringing up. Regeneration itself, going from death to life, but also all of the subsequent putting to death of the old man and quickening of the new man. So all of the progressive sanctification that we go through. Christ as the incarnate God-man is also the Word. It is the Word with us. He is the Word with us. The incarnation is a special dwelling. We've talked about how the whole book of John is organized to think about the tabernacle, to think about the way in which Christ is dwelling with us and to give us all the typologies of the tabernacle. And here we are at this section on light, and so the light reminds us of the menorah, of the, the lamp stand. And so we talked about how in the old tabernacle and temple system, there was a consolidated, multi-pronged lamp stand. And then in the New Covenant, what we have is the distribution of the lamps out to the world as every church has a lampstand. And there is this threat in the book of Revelation that if we do not maintain right doctrine, worship, and government, that the lampstand will be taken away. And also love on an individual and household level. So lastly, the work of the church to take hold of the knowledge of the truth and for the pastor teachers to work together to organize words as goads and for that teaching work to be done for the maturing of the body so that everyone is equipped. There is a way in which there's a corporate maturing where the possession of the word occurs not only individually in increased ways, but where the church throughout time has an increasing knowledge. So today we don't spend all of our time talking about the Trinity because we had the work of the Nicene Fathers that helped to make it so it was easy for us to argue for the Trinity. And for Chalcedon's work, we are able to more easily argue now because of what Athanasius and the men who followed him later at Chalcedon, their work to defend the Incarnation, Athanasius being more around the time of Nicaea. And so we, we have this work where step by step there's been a building up so that we have the work of the church that makes it easier for us to deal with past controversies rather than having to reinvent the wheel over and over again. So this idea of light, I want you to think about the seven ways that we've already talked about in the past that we see the logos. And furthermore, I want to remind you that in the scriptures there is a usage of this light and darkness comparison over and over again. And the first of it occurs in Genesis. Right? God uses light to differentiate. He causes a differentiation of light and darkness. And we have this idea that, that the logical order of creation and the logical order of truth, that truth itself has logic embedded in it, makes so the differentiation of things is a part of what God is concerned for. The way God glorifies himself is by causing us to see the distinction of things. Truth and error, good and evil, right? Holy, unholy. 
righteousness and unrighteousness. There is the distinction of things helps us to understand. And so there is again in Exodus this idea of Goshen and the ninth plague being separated, the space where the Israelites or the Hebrews were, and this idea of the, the Israelites being, being in a separate place and them having light and the plague of darkness going on Egypt, the differentiation. In Exodus 14, you begin to have this idea of the, the pillar of fire leading the people out of Egypt, and it keeps a light for the camp of Israel, but it, there's a darkness that is over the camp of the Egyptians. So this distinction theme is all throughout Scripture, and you can, you can find many more as you go through the Bible, but those are some of the introductory ones that are given to us powerfully to understand this illustration as we get it over and over again in Scripture, and it's an emphasis in John. Remember, the word light is used over and over again in John. So Jesus is picking back up this theme, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so life itself is going to be defined for us in John 17 as the knowledge of God. The light of life is that knowledge of God. It's the possession of the truth as so we have the knowledge of God. Now, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, by true, what's really meant there is not valid as testimony in a court. So it's not inherently false, but it is something that is, is not to be accepted in a court. So it's not true in that sense. We're talking about testimony and this is, would be applicable with the coming of prophets. So Jesus answers and says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come from, where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. So this should not be generalized in the following way. You read that and here's your tendency. First of all, we go, I don't really know what that means and just kind of move on. You'll think about it. The second possibility is you read that and you go, you know, so if I know where I'm coming from and nobody else does, like if I can just like sneak in the room, it's like, where'd you come in? I came in through the window. Nobody knows. So now my testimony is valid because I know where I came from and you don't. Right? That's not how it works. This is not a, a way of sneaking into a courtroom and trying to have a, a rule of, of evidence applied to you because you're the one who managed to sneak in. This is not a general rule about people who know where they've been in the last hour and the people who don't know don't get to give testimony. The point is that Jesus is saying, I know where I come from. I'm God. And I came from the Father. And so this is a statement of authority. Okay? This is not some special rule of evidence about you know, knowing where you came from. So Jesus is appealing to that. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. So in other words, you don't understand God's plan. If you'd read the scriptures more carefully, you might have picked up on the idea of the Messiah being the divine and human mediator. And you might have picked up on that this was the plan. And my goal is to come here to die so that I can be resurrected, so that I can ascend. Right? These things are prophesied. These things are in the scriptures. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I've come from. And you don't know where I'm going because you're not paying attention. Maybe if you paid attention, it would help. But you can't pay attention. Why? Because you're not from God. Right? That's, what the, that's what he's overarchingly doing. Okay? And so... This is a very aggressive confrontation by Jesus. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Okay, so he's saying, you judge using standards that come from your human nature. You're not judging according to the law. When he says, I judge no one, this is the kind of stuff that liberals like to grab hold of and twist. So what does this mean? Is Jesus saying he never acts as a public figure to administer justice? No, that's baloney. What does he do? He comes and he judges everybody. He will judge everything you have ever thought, said, and done. Everything. So how can he say he doesn't judge anybody? Because he doesn't judge anybody by his own standard. It doesn't come up out of him, or especially out of his human nature. He is judging based upon the standard that God the Father gave him. So his judgment is a delegated judgment as the second person in the Trinity, coming as the incarnate Messiah, as the mediatorial king. And so his judgment as a king, as a mediator, is under the authority of the Father and is not of himself. But then get this. Yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. He's saying, I don't judge because of the fact that I'm judging by the standard the Father gave, but even if I judged by my own standard, it would still be true because I'm God. Right? This is a divinity claim. 
that he could do that in and of himself. Why doesn't he? Not because he lacks the essence of divinity, but because he has agreed in the covenant that he made with his Father and with the Holy Spirit to fulfill a particular role. And so this is about him as the one who has made a covenant with the Father and also as the mediator. So if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone. So that I'm not aloneness is an assertion that there's a unity of judgment. Even if he did judge of himself, it would still be true because the hard drive of his mind is synchronized to the hard drive of God the Father's mind. They agree about everything. The backup is perfect. They are not disagreeing at any point. There's no corruption of the files. And so, that being the case, they agree about everything. So if he judged of himself, it would still be right because it would agree with the Father. I bear witness of my, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. So this unity with the Father is a unity of agreement, of judgment, of thought. Verse 17, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So Jesus has talked about this earlier, including back in John 5, and he talks about the witnesses, right? We have the witness of his works, that those were prophesied about, and he fulfills those. We have the witness of John the Baptist, who is a prophet, and we have the witness of the Father, who spoke when he was baptized and affirmed that Jesus was his son. And so, we have those testimonies, Jesus' testimony, and we also have the idea of the prophets themselves. So the prophets, his works, John the Baptist, the Father, and Jesus testifying himself. So I am one who bears witness of, him, of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. All right, so what we see here is Jesus engaging, again, this is very aggressive, this is very straightforward rebuke, he is fighting hard. Why is he doing this? Right? Contrast this with the way he deals with, even though he's straightforward and everything, this is not the, this is not the same sort of interaction as what you see with like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. This is not the same sort of interaction that you see in general, from Jesus with people who are not in authority. When he's engaging with people who claim to be in public teaching office, he plays the man. What he does is he fights hard. He punches hard when he sees these people acting with evidence of malice. And so, there is an obligation for elders to punch other elders in the face hard when they are teaching heresy or when they are wrongly seeking to tear down the truth or to oppress people who are not in authority, there is an obligation of men to do that. Civil magistrates have a similar duty. For example, governors of states should never have submitted to Roe v. Wade. They should always have said, you have made your ruling, now enforce it. And they said, as for me and my state, we will execute murderers. That should always have been the response. They should never have cowered out. They should always have punched hard against other magistrates. And so officers of public authority always have an obligation to fight to protect those who are under their authority and to refuse to cow when they are facing public authorities that would do injustice. So the Lord Jesus Christ intensifies the conflict and he keeps pressing home. And he's rebuking these people and telling them they're ignorant and he's telling them they need to repent and he's telling them that they don't know what they claim to know. So this kind of thing, we need to look to Jesus' example and realize that this is the sort of thing that we should expect out of leaders who are fighting against evil leaders. Our inclination is to always think the guy who looks mean is wrong. Sometimes niceness is used to kill. 
Niceness is a weapon that has been picked up in evangelicalism to attack those who would defend the truth. It has been the weapon of liberals for a long time. Niceness is the kind of thing that you use to kill people in their sin. And so what we need to recognize is that there's a duty for the preacher to take the word of God and to argue it against wickedness of every kind. So in our age, and this applies to all of you, in our in our age, it is so common to be encouraged to try to accept any kind of sexual deviancy, no matter what. And it's your job to say, you're a boy, not a girl. You're a girl, not a boy. It's your job to say homosexuality is wrong. I don't care if the Republicans have abandoned that as the thing to care about. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Right? You are obligated to say the things of God, even though everybody is telling you that's not loving. It is loving. And the world is trying to kill them trying to corrupt their souls and leave them in darkness. Now, in the same vein, in Christian circles, nobody wants to hear you argue about doctrine. They want you to say, we're unified, we're unified, we're unified. But I'll tell you what, if we don't agree, there is no unity. And so, the thing to do is to talk about places of disagreement with the hope of coming to agreement. These are not popular things. In the general world, talking about sexual sin or being aware of it is something that's not popular. And in the church, trying to say sharp distinctions of doctrine matter, those things are not popular. But we have to maintain both. And the Lord Jesus Christ is doing this. He's arguing here not about transgender kids. He's not arguing here about homosexuality. He's not arguing here about abortion. He's arguing about doctrine that these people don't have a proper doctrine of God. He's being this mean because they don't have a proper doctrine of God. He's being this mean because they don't understand the prophecies about the Messiah. He's being this mean because they aren't paying attention to the doctrine of Scripture. He is escalating. Escalating escalating and he's there in the middle of them in the temple in the treasury the presence where their true god is and he leaves and nobody grabs him why is it because there weren't enough of them they weren't surrounding him enough there weren't enough people that were outraged to grab him no it's because god predestined that he would be safe until the hour he was meant to not be so we see jesus playing the man Verse verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away. He re-engages. He comes back. He plays their emotions like a fiddle. Right? There's this, I'm outraged, and he leaves. He, He lets them have the outrage. He lets the outrage fizzle out. And he comes back and he re-engages with them. Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So this going away, this idea that they're going to seek him, and that he's go- they're going to die in their sin. What is he talking about? And where I go, you cannot come. The Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. Remember last time they were like, is he going to go away to the diaspora? Is he going to go to the Greek Jews and, and that way get away from us? Is that what's going to happen? And this time they've, they've, they've moved along a little bit. They're going, is he talking about death? Pretty sure he's talking about death. So that's accurate. That's what he's planning to do, not to kill himself, but he's planning to die. And he's planning to die by their hand. And so this idea that he is going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I go you cannot come. He's talking to them not about every individual of them, but rather as a corporate body. What we're going to see is this visible church, generally what's going to happen is its governance is going to apostatize and reject the Messiah and murder him. So as a general rule, that's the case. John is escalating this conflict in the narrative here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show us what happens in terms of Israel's throwing off of Messiah King. So the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, what you will, sorry, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So, they're questioning what is being talked about. And so he begins to give them a hint about what he's talking about. He's talking to them about his origins first. 
Okay? You're from beneath. Is he saying they're from hell? He's not. Over and over again, what we find is all these texts in the Bible that talk about above, below, above, below, above, below. People like to think about the below part, and they think it's talking about hell. It's not. Overwhelmingly, when you see these things, the text is talking about earth, which is below heaven. So they're from the earth. They're earthly. They're fleshly. So the idea is that they are from the earth. And this goes back to John 3 with this idea that that what's, what comes from the flesh is flesh. What's born of the flesh is flesh. The same sort of thing. The, the, where the, the root is, and here's the fruit of it. So the from below. They're from earth. He's from above. He's commissioned from heaven. You are of this world. That's the defining. So this, is, this is a parallelism. He's defining the beneath. I am not of this world. Okay? He's from above, not like the clouds. He's from above, not like Jupiter. He's from above as in the third heaven. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. So that's the natural condition. They are going to die in their sins unless they are converted. And some of them will be. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. He's laying out the condition, right? You will die in your sins because an absence of faith in Christ as the Messiah makes it so that one will die in his sins. Verse 25. Then they said to him, Who are you? He tells them to believe in you. Who who are you? what, what What is it you want us to believe? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. That's an assertion of divinity. The beginning of what? Well, you, you, can, you can say from the beginning of when he started talking to them, but he's talking about the same things that I've been saying to you since the creation. Since Genesis chapter 3, when the gospel was first given to Adam, these things, this is what you need to be believing. I, you need to believe the things about me that I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. I thought you don't judge anybody. You see here, Jesus isn't contradicting himself. He's saying his judgment is the judgment that's the authority of the Father. It's not of himself. Right? You see how this helps you to see how that reconciles? But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Okay, so he's testifying true things from the Father. And he's judging as sent by the Father to judge. And now... This idea that he speaks to the world. Remember, the world is in contrast to Israel, just the land. He's speaking these things to Israel, but he's also speaking these things to the world. He has come so that the elect out of every nation would be converted, and so that every nation would covenant with God and be in submission under the King of Kings. He speaks to the world those things which... I heard from him, from the Father. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, and he's telling them what it is that they're going to do. Why is it he's going to go away? Because they're going to murder him. They're going to raise him up on a tree that he might take curse for the elect. They're going to hang him on a tree and lift him up. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And when you lift up the Son of Man, then you're going to know that I'm the Son of Man. And that I do nothing of myself. And everything He's doing is a command from the Father. He is carefully following the regulative principle of life. He is doing everything the Father commands and doing nothing except what the Father commands. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. All of his doctrine is from the Father. It's sola scriptura. And he who sent me is with me. There's the promise to conquer. We see this over and over again in Scripture. I'm there, God's with me. The people of God are there, God's with me. Jesus is there, God's with me. It's always a promise that he will protect, and it's always a promise that he will help you to conquer. That's always what it means. There is... A 
tendency for us to not make that connection. And I want you to understand that the Bible is a warlike book. And it is full of assertions that God will protect you from your enemies. He will shatter their teeth. He will crush them under His feet and your feet and the church's feet. He will crush them under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will help you to conquer. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. He hasn't left me to your devices, O dark ones. For I always do those things that please Him. God gives power as we seek to apply His Word. He causes blessing to come upon the use of what He commands. And so He causes power to come with it. The most pragmatic thing you can do to see wealth and political power and long life and happiness is to take what God commands and to do it. And you can expect that He'll bless it. And if He doesn't in the short term, you know and you should rejoice that that is an oath from God that if you go through the test well, that He will give you blessing a hundredfold. So whenever there's trial for doing righteousness, you know that is a time where God is going to multiply the reward and the blessing. If you do what He commands, if you believe what He has commanded. The Father has not left me alone for I always do those things that please Him. As He spoke these words, many believed in Him. Okay, so, so do you see how this doesn't mean that everybody who was listening to Him is somebody who was going to be condemned, right? He's speaking in general terms about the condemnation that would befall them. And He's talking about the generality of the group. And yet at the same time, many individuals believed. So there's a corporate aspect, and there's covenantal curse that befalls the Jewish people. But there were many individuals who believed, including his own disciples who were Jews, including Paul, who was a Jew. Right? The, Jesus himself being a Jew. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Right? So these people have made a profession. They believe something. And he's saying, if you abide in my word, if over time you continue to hear this and you reside in the presence of the preaching and the reading of the word, then you will reveal yourself to be a true disciple. Is this saying that justification is by faith plus perseverance? No. Perseverance is a promise, not a condition that comes with justification. If you have a saving faith, you will persevere. This is saying... Those who believe, if they abide, then they are true disciples. This is a marker for those who are external. God knows He doesn't need to test you over time to figure out whether He actually gave you faith. You should test what you believe against the Scriptures. Am I believing the thing that's written in the book? Do I believe what Christ has said? Or am I believing fanciful, false Gospels? Not that there is another Gospel. Or, if I believe, then I know I will abide. And it will be shown to others in my abiding. And it's a guarantee. If you actually believe the gospel, you will be preserved. No one loses their faith if they have been given a saving faith. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The knowledge of the truth is what true believers have. That's what it is to believe. It's to know the truth. And in knowing the truth, the truth overcomes the lies that we believe, and it makes us free. Free from what? That's the question these guys say. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anybody. How can you say you'll make us free? How, you, how can you say you'll be made free? I don't get it. They're thinking about physical slavery to another human being. Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, and, and by the way, it should have been obvious, right? They, they should have applied this, but this is the leadership trying to play the political game. Even if they were thinking in physical terms, you'd immediately go, Rome, right? This is what they would all immediately think. Everybody in the audience would immediately go, well, I feel like, I feel like we're kind of enslaved to Rome. We're all kind of talking about this a lot. But we don't get to do what we think we should do, and there's this political oppression. So you think at least that, but they're saying, no, we've never been enslaved. How can you say you'll be made free? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever. But a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Everybody who is saved by the Lord Jesus Christ will experience the glorified condition of total sinlessness. And also will go through to some degree in this life the continued growth of the knowledge of the truth, the removal of falsehood from the mind, the reduction of obedience to wickedness, and the increase of obedience to righteousness. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans plainly talks about this idea that we are to make our hands not weapons of evil, but weapons of righteousness. We are to be instruments of righteousness. And so sanctification is a part of the promise as well. Sanctification, growing in godliness, is not a condition of you continuing in justification. It's not a condition of being saved. It's a promise. You will see more knowledge of the truth and you will see a reduction in sin and an increase of righteousness. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Right? Sons are people who are not slaves. Sons will obey the Son. They will obey the Father. Justification is by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. It saves us from sin in order to do righteousness. The doing of righteousness is a fruit and a goal and a guarantee. It is not a condition of justification. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. That's how they seek him. He said, you're going to seek me. That sounds nice. Because people are condemned because they don't seek after God. And so he's saying, you're going to seek me. How are they going to seek him? They're going to seek to kill him. They're going to seek him like a bloodhound seeks a criminal. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Notice the faith in him is the same thing as faith in his word. Some people will give to you a heresy that says saving faith is not believing doctrine. Saving faith is a relationship with a person. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You believe doctrine. You believe doctrine and that's how you believe Christ. If you try to separate Christ from doctrine, that's heresy. You don't, you don't know anything about Christ apart from his doctrine. If you don't have his word telling you who he is, you have no idea who he is. He's a vain imagining and an emotional experience conjured up from your heart or from the tamales that went bad that you ate last night. There is nothing about your experience that is necessary to justification. It is doctrine and doctrine alone. Faith is in truth. It's the word of Christ. And it is not looking for some sort of experience or a relational thing. An enjoyment of the relationship with God is a fruit and benefit of saving faith. It is not saving faith itself. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. This is the power of example. And the idea here, okay, Father, God the Father, their Father, that's Satan. We're going to get there. And that idea, those things are too laid out. But I want to emphasize this, fathers and husbands. Your example is very powerful, and what is observed in men becomes the habit of children. And wives like to take the poor behavior of husbands and use it as an excuse for their poor behavior. The example of the patriarch is often the limit and ceiling of what will occur in a home. And the example of elders and deacons is often the example that becomes the limit of what anybody would expect of themselves in a church. It is so important to maintain high character in officers, high character in fathers and husbands. 
And yet let me tell you all this, children and wives. Never use your patriarch or your deacon or your elder as an excuse for not going to higher places in the knowledge of God or in holiness or in righteousness. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I went this far and no further because of him, he will say, well, that's too bad because you could have had a lot more rewards. Next. Don't do that. Don't waste your life. Do not allow my failures, the failures of Deacon Schaefer, the failures of your patriarch to be something that prevents you from growing in godliness or truth. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Christ has acknowledged that Abraham is the person that is their ancestor. They are descendants of Abraham. He's a father in a certain sense. But Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children spiritually, if you had the faith of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Right? Doctrine controls practice. You always do what you believe because what you believe results in you valuing things. And what you value controls your choices. Doctrine controls practice. When you sin, it's always because you might have, you might go, I believe the truth. I believe the law says this. I believe I'm supposed to do that. Yeah, but don't you also believe that pleasure is your God? Don't you also believe that money is really going to make you happy? Don't you also believe that it's really power that you need to grasp hold of? There are false gods that we believe the true God, we can believe the gospel, but all of our sin is rooting in, rooted in false beliefs. So the way to overcome sin is by the knowledge of the truth. And we'll see that in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. So what does that mean? They're trying to kill a true prophet. Abraham did not do this. How, how did Abraham respond when he ran into true prophets? When he ran into Melchizedek, for example, he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had. Didn't try to kill him. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, God. Right? We're not bastards, we are descendants of Abraham, and we are children of God. They're trying to make an assertion that they're legitimate, that they are descendants of Abraham, and that they have God as a spiritual father. This is their assertion. They're, they're starting to pick it up. They're starting to pick up what he's laying down in terms of his criticisms, and they're trying to head them all off. <coughs> Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself. But he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? He's about to answer his own question. Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Right? The idea of the fatherhood here is the idea of your nature is a nature that accords with the devil. Not the nature of God. It's not good in itself. It's this idea of you have an evil nature. You're proceeding from evil and you are evil in yourself. You're of like nature with your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Okay, So he doesn't do truth because he doesn't believe truth. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and a father of it. You see how much this is a catechesis on human nature? He's saying this is what the devil's like, and the children of the devil are like this, and this is what human beings are like unless they are given life from heaven. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? I'm a credible witness. 
You don't have some charge that's going to say, my character is such that I can't be heard as a witness. Who convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Okay. Notice how that verse 46 helps you to understand earlier about witnesses. If you, you know, he is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And he's saying, you don't have anything. This is all in the context of witness bearing, right? So he's saying, okay, if you're a legitimate witness, you should be the one who throws the first stone. And so if you're without sin, it disqualifies you from being a witness. Then you should throw the first stone. And he's saying, now I'm a witness and you should hear my witness. And I don't have any sins that disqualify me from that. Now we all know Jesus is sinless in totality, not just the level of sin that disqualifies a witness, but the least bit, not not the hint of sin, in his soul, or his words, or his outward actions. But in this context, what he's talking about is this idea of, you don't have anything to disqualify me as a witness. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? That's, That's a condemnation. For all the reasons I just said, you can't. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. If anybody wants to argue with you that a man can have faith apart from the irresistible grace of God, just read them this verse. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear. Notice the therefore. You don't hear because you're not of God. Because you are not of God. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Those words therefore and because have meaning. They have logical meaning. They tell you the reason why. He who is of God hears God's words. So the elect always are given faith and believe before their death. The reprobate do not hear because they are not of God. And then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) The changing of the subject from the doctrine to the character of the man. First, (laughs) you don't have anything to convict me of. And what do they do? They don't go, well, actually, we have witnesses that saw you do this thing. It's not even that. It's not even your character is bad. It's a, you are of the group of people we do not like and look down upon. An attempt to reduce him by association. And you have a demon. When you take a true prophet of God and the words that he says by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you say those words come from a demon, that is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, friend. It was a terrifying thing to do. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Whose, whose glory is he seeking? He's seeking the Father's glory. Now he knows it brings glory to himself, but he's seeking the glory of the Father and that will result in his glory. This is the economy of the Trinity that's being revealed here. This is the inner workings of of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is glorious stuff we are looking into. You are peering into the Holy of Holies. You are looking into the interaction of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These things are being revealed as Jesus does combat with these men who are reprobates. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. He is warning them about death, and he's telling them how to escape death. This kind of pleading. If you saw a man talking to people on the street about the gospel like this, would you not be in awe at his courage? And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who's dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And he's saying, I am greater than Abraham. I am better than the prophets. My word, insofar as they were speaking the truth, they were speaking my word. All the prophecy they gave was my word. 
Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that He is our God. Yet you have not known Him, but I know Him. And if I say I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. He's just raising the level of the intensity of the fight. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham, in the sense of your descendants of him, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So he asserts, they're going, Abraham and the prophets, they're dead. How dare you? You think you're better than them? And he goes, yeah, I am. I am God. He rejoiced to see my day. I'm the, I'm the Messiah. He's looking forward to it. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, sorry, verse 57, then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was as far away from Abraham as we are from Jesus in the timeline. This would be like saying, I saw Jesus. That, that's, that's the kind of claim that he's making here. So, when he's talking about a guy who died about 2,000 years before he was born, the assertion of divinity here is so frank and plain and clear. And this assertion of ego I me, right? This I am that I am. This assertion of the divine name in verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They get it immediately. You talk to a Jehovah's Witness and they go, Jesus isn't God, never claimed to be God. You go, I don't know about you, but I have read John 8. And I understand exactly why the people picked up stones when Jesus said what he said. They took up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they knew that he was claiming to be God. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. This hiding of himself seems to be a supernatural work where he's, they, they don't see him any lower. He's able to leave by going through the midst of them, and he passes by. And this is, again, the supernatural protection of Jesus until the time meant for his death. This is the kind of powerful bravery of a man charging a battle line. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ and the way he argues, the intensity, the clarity, the precision, the fact that he doesn't back down, that he doesn't let the point go, he always pushes the doctrinal point. I commend the example of our Lord to you. Stand open to comments, questions. And objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.